0: Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to help inspire more people to discover and love the arts. This is a guest curator episode by Annie Yal Kwan as part of Noguchi Resonances. Hello, my name is Annie. I'm an independent curator and researcher, usually based in London, but I'm currently in Singapore due to the pandemic and family matters. My work has focused on contemporary and live art in relation to Asia, uh, with an interest in archives, art histories, issues of identity, Southeast and East Asian diasporas, and questions around collectivity and transnational solidarity. I'm an associate of Asia Art Activism, which is based in London, and a council member of Asia Forum. Asia Art Activism is a research network based in London and working transnationally. Uh, It focuses on exploring the three areas of Asia, art and activism, and its entanglements and proximities. Asia Forum refocuses global Asians as a lens with which to examine exciting artistic practices and critical urgencies. So I'm really pleased to be currently the digital researcher in residence at the Barbican and curating Noguchi Residences, the online public program that will unfold from October to December this year alongside Noguchi, an exhibition celebrating Japanese-American sculptor Isamu Noguchi. Their residency has been an interesting opportunity to reflect and respond to Noguchi's artistic legacy, his transnational lived experiences, his voluntary incarceration at Poston, one of the Japanese-American internment camps during World War II, and the questions raised around his identity, positionality, and transnational global perspectives on community and solidarity. So today I'm really pleased to have with me Professors Masi Kwan and Ming Tiampo and fellow curator and researcher Mika Maruyama who are joining in from around the world. Marcy I believe you're in the West Coast of USA. And Ming, you're in Rome. And Mika, you're still in Japan. So thank you for making time to join with me uh, and being here despite the stretch across multiple time zones. So maybe as a way to kick us off, um if you could please each explain a little bit about your practice uh, which would give us some context from where you work and then perhaps then share with us your encounter with and perspective on Naguchi as an artist and person um, perhaps Marcy, if you could please do the honors
1: Sure, Um, so first of all, Annie, thank you so much for uh, gathering us here today. Uh, My name is Marcy Kwan. I'm assistant professor of art history at Stanford, where I teach uh, American art uh, with a focus on Asian American artists. Um, I'm also the direct, the co-director of the Asian American art initiative at Stanford University's Cantor Arts Center, which is our campus museum. Um, which is dedicated to the collection, display, preservation and research of um, artists of the Asian diaspora living in the Americas. For those of you who aren't familiar with Izama Noguchi, um, he was born in 1904. Uh, His mother was Leonie Gilmore, um, an Irish American writer and editor. And his father was Yone Noguchi, um, who was an acclaimed Japanese poet. And he had quite a distinguished artistic career, um, working, for example, with dancer Michio Ito um, in 1926, going to Paris um, and becoming uh, an assistant of Constantin Brancusi. um, And making all sorts of works uh, actually quite politically engaged in the 1930s, um, including Death, which is a pretty remarkable a uh, sculpture of monel metal, um, rope and wood um, that shows a lynched figure that was uh, created as part of um, a, a kind of artistic response to the continued lynchings um, in the United States. One of the key moments in Noguchi's life um, is when he was voluntarily incarcerated in Poston, Arizona in 1942. Um, And this brings us to the kind of larger story of Japanese incarceration um, by the United States during World War II. um, After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, then the president of the United States, signed Executive Order 9066 as a response to the kind of fear that Japanese people or people of Japanese descent living in the United States would somehow aid the war efforts um, of Japan. Um, so there was um, written into the executive order was a specific um. Uh, discussion of potential sabotage of infrastructure. And practically what that meant was that um, approximately 120,000 people um, on the Western seaboard um, were forcibly rounded up and relocated. Um, It was so quick uh, that many of them had to make you know, hasty arrangements for their property, their um, their possessions, their homes, um, you know, very famously, they could bring um, only what they carried um, into uh, first assembly centers, which were, um, you know, the infrastructure required to house um, and incarcerate so many people um, so quickly was being built right after the executive order. And so they were actually transferred first to these assembly centers, which were often located um, on racetracks because they had stalls for horses that families lived in, um, and then were located to one of 10 uh, permanent incarceration camps um, across the United States. So Noguchi, um, who is living on the eastern uh, seaboard at this Moment was actually not uh, subject to Executive Order Nine Zero Six Six. It was people only within um, a kind of designated geographic zone. Um, but he met with John Collier, who is then the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which was heavily involved um, in um, this incarceration effort because um, a lot of the land um, they had was, you know, that they quote unquote managed. Um, through a project of Native reservations, um, was actually the site of many of these incarceration camps because there wasn't a lot of infrastructure around. And he persuaded um, Noguchi to actually enter the incarceration camp um, at Poston um, in order to try to ameliorate the lives of uh, the people there and also, um, you know, create work. You know, potentially. Um, Uh, Kind of landscape uh, designs and things of that sort. So when he's in the camps, uh, he works on various things, um, including, um, in fact, a portrait bust of the actress Ginger Rogers. Um, But he quickly finds that his kind of idealistic intentions of entering the camps um, are coming up against a really brutal reality of of what it's like to be incarcerated. Um, You know, he talks about both the material effects of this, of, um, you know, he was promised Um, As much kind of material as he wanted in order to build and create, um, obviously, that was much harder to come by there. And actually, uh, his turn to wood um, at this moment as um, a chosen artistic medium is coming from what he can actually salvage from the camp's uh, environment around him. But he's also, I think, um, acutely aware of the psychological effects. He talks about the sense of being kind of frozen in time in the camps where um, the rest of the world is kind of passing by around him. I want to make sure uh, to say that um, a lot of this research has been done by the art historian, Amy Lyford um, and Dakin Hart, um, who is a curator at the Noguchi Museum. Um, uh, Amy wrote a wonderful book um, on particularly um, kind of illuminating this this aspect of Noguchi's career and Dakin um, curated a show at the Noguchi Museum called Self-interned. And so Noguchi is eventually completely disillusioned, um, granted a temporary furlough of a month, um, and just never returns to the camps and says, you know, this is an incredibly profound experience for him. He has this feeling when he emerges from his incarceration that he's constantly being watched. And in fact, um, later it was shown that the FBI ended up tracking him for three years after his incarceration. Um, And so you know, the question of why this is important today, I mean, first of all, just the story of incarceration and internment is such a key moment in the history of Asian American racialization um, for several reasons, you know, one, this notion of um, of a kind of foreign agent, and it shows how geopolitical events are entwined with um, things that are considered more domestic, such as racialization. Um, it also, you know, um, helps us understand a bit about the complexities of different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds in relation to these geopolitical events. Um, there were actually propaganda images that were published um, during the war that were um, teaching, quote unquote, people how to distinguish between a Japanese person and a Chinese person or um, an enemy alien or an ally. Um, And um, I think that it is also just, you know, a story and a reminder of um, the depredations of the American government, just as the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 was uh, the first kind of nationality based uh, discriminatory immigration law, which we see in subsequent executive orders. You know, this kind of forcible rounding up and incarceration um, under the 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 more gentle term, which is, of course, a youth. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right.
0: premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials. You'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping at 365 day returns.
1: euphemism of internment um, is still happening um, in the United States.
0: Thank you so much, Marcy. Thank you for that wonderful introduction and gives us a, such a good overview and summary of, um, in a way, the context in which Noguchi was working and why he made that decision, perhaps, to enter the camps. And it was just a few things you said that also sort of triggered thoughts in my mind was that I think one point you made was it the internment of the Japanese Americans all happened very quickly. You know, from the point of time that there was a decision and uh, an executive order, and then it just happened. And I think that sometimes um, I think it's something worth thinking about because um, sometimes we think that things move very slowly, but for some reason, when um, there's a kind of hostile uh, governmental act, it's actually very quick. And so, therefore, there isn't actually um, really the opportunity to respond as a community to really consider what's going on. So, I think that's something that is. Um, very sobering. Um, I think the other thing also that you mentioned was, is so interesting, you said that they were doing this kind of propaganda around how do you distinguish between a Chinese and Japanese person? But of course, um, that's not even actually possible to some degree because of course the famous um, incident in 1982 was exactly about that, right? With Victor Chin's murder, um, because I think he's Chinese American but he was mistaken for a Japanese and there was a lot of anger Um, because of the success of the Japanese car industry which led to a car factory um, being closed down I believe in Chicago and and therefore um, two disgruntled employees basically uh, beat him up and and he was beaten to death, which is really horrific when we start to think about how um, these kind of border geopolitical entanglements get played out in a kind of reality uh, in terms of like, social everyday life. Um, maybe right now, if I just kind of turn to you, Ming, um, perhaps if you could introduce yourself and you and, um, can hear a little from your perspective as well. Hi, Annie. Hi, Marcy.
3: Hi, Mika. Uh, it's so great to be with all of you and to to think alongside you about um, these really important issues. And in the context of the Barbican's Maguchi show, I'm really thrilled that um, this will be taking place and that we'll be able to use this as a way to have some really important dialogues, um, both about global art history, but also about um, race and diaspora and trying to understand what it means to have those, uh, to think those two issues, um, those two different ways of understanding art history together. So I'm a professor of art history at Carleton University and I'm the co-director of the Center for Transnational Cultural Analysis and also a scholar of the global post-war with a focus on transnational models and histories that provide new structures for understanding and reconfiguring the global. Uh, Most of my publications have been on Japanese modernism, global modernism and diaspora and the early part of my career was really spent thinking about Japanese postwar art history, and in particular, the Gutai group, on whom I uh, wrote a book published by the University of Chicago Press, and also co-curated an exhibition at the Guggenheim. And so more recently, I've been taking a a different um, direction in my work, and I've been thinking about intersections between diaspora and the global uh, through the concept of global Asia's with a project called Transversal Modernism, the Sclade School of Fine Art a study which reimagines how we write global art history through global microhistory, as well as writing a book on the Korean Canadian artist, Jimmy Yoon. So you can see that I'm thinking about some global issues. I'm also thinking about um, diaspora issues. So, I'm also involved in a lot of collaborative projects right now, um, which I think is really necessary for the future of global art history. Um, and, you know, this is because when we write global art histories, it's not possible just to take one perspective. It's really important, I think, to take multiple perspectives to world our perspectives on global art histories. Um, so, I think it is really important for us to be having. Um, Conversations like this um, for us to be uh, collaborating with people in different other fields. Um, and one of the things that I'm doing is I'm part of a writing collective that's producing a source book or a textbook called Intersecting Modernisms, and um, also part of a project called Worlding Public Cultures. So we've been cooking up many different things, um, Annie and I, um, including the very exciting Asia Forum. My understanding of Noguchi's work is very much inflected by um, the fact that I come from post-war Japanese art history and the work of my colleagues, um, especially Bert Winter Tamaki, um, whose work really locates Noguchi's work within the spaces of both Japanese and American art. Uh, So within the material culture of Japan, clay, paper, wood, and its minimalist aesthetics, and also the nationalist politics of the American post-war art world, which continuously coded his work as Asiatic and Oriental. And so the work that um, Winter Tamaki does is brilliant in the way that he traces those histories and those visual languages and material cultures Demonstrating how Noguchi's work was inflected by geopolitics and the client state relationship that Japan had with the United States after the war. So, this sort of US Japan um, aspect of um, the reception of Noguchi's work is really very present in uh, Winter Tamaki's work. More recently, scholars have been thinking more about Noguchi, not just as a figure s- situated between Japan and the United States but as a Japanese American artist, which Noguchi articulates as a political category in his 1942 essay, I Became a Nisei, which he wrote for Reader's Digest, but which of course was never published. Um, so in other words, in contemporary scholarship now, he's no longer just being understood within aestheticized frameworks of being between East and West, uh, but through the political lens that Winter Tamaki brought to his work on US-Japan relations, and also the racialization of Japanese Americans in American life. So that is to say that we understand Noguchi now as an artist of global Asians. And so this interestingly also plays into Noguchi's design for a cenotaph memorial for Hiroshima, as he creates a design that would be visible for outer, from outer space, which then situates Hiroshima as a crime against humanity, which universalizes the bombing and sort of distances um, the issue of victimhood from Japan so that we're thinking about, you know, not US-Japan relationships, but we're thinking about a crime against humanity in this work, which is quite an interesting shift that happens. So this is of course important because it reminds us that the intensification of racialization takes place in specific moments in history. This is something that Marcy brought up just now. Um, And that diasporic experience is shaped by global events. So it's really important to think about global Asia as a model for thinking about diaspora and global histories as intersecting narratives and not as being separated as we have had a tendency to do in um, scholarship in the past. So here with Noguchi, we see this playing out in the context of Japan as an enemy nation during World War II, but of course, we, it also makes me think of the racialization of Arab diasporas in the context of 9 11 and the racialization of East Asians in the context of COVID 19. And these are really important flashpoints to remember so that we understand that this isn't just a faraway history that can be forgotten, but really something that continues to be really relevant to experience today. And so Marchi's work on Noguchi and intern makes an important contribution to this discourse, as does Amy Lyford's book um, that she mentioned just now, as well as um, the exhibition by Acting Hart um, at the Noguchi Museum. So we're really starting to think differently about Noguchi recently. Um, and I really like the way that Lyford's book understands Noguchi. Um, as a social activist actually. And the ways in which she brings out his commitments to civil rights, um, labor, and then after Pearl Harbor and executive Order 9066, which um, as Marci mentioned, decreed the relocation of Japanese Americans to internment camps, um, she begins to understand Noguchi as addressing Japanese American and specifically Nisei or second generation Japanese politics. So in reading um, Noguchi's I Became a Nisei, a few issues emerge for me that are extremely resonant for us today. And the most urgent issue, which I will address today, is really the question of how does he become Nisei, which is a process that is for him both gradual um, in that he writes about how he had a haunting sense of unreality, of not quite belonging, which drove him to seek answers among the Nisei. And also it's quite locatable. Um, The first time he heard of Nisei um, as a community was when he received uh, the Yamamoto Award for Nisei Achievement in 1940, which then connected him with a group of Nisei from Hawaii. And then the second time when he started to think about Nisei as an identity was after Pearl Harbor when he felt his face suddenly connected to theirs. And he writes, But it was only after December 7th, when I again found myself upon the shores of the Pacific that I actively came to associate myself with the Nisei in any way. I sought them out in Los Angeles and in San Francisco out of realization of their special misfortune. I wished to help. I also wished to know the people who because of war, I had suddenly become a part. So here, we get at the core of Asian diasporic racialization, be it in the United States, Canada, Australia, Britain, and especially Europe where I'm living now in Italy, which is that any claims to belonging or to homing are so fragile and are easily disrupted by geopolitical events. So I'd like for us to think a little bit about what the rise of anti-Asian hate in the context of COVID-19 tells us about diasporic citizenship. And the ugly phrase that unfortunately we've probably all heard go back to where you came from. And if that place is where you are and have been for generations, what does that actually mean? In the case of settler colonial countries like the United States, Canada, and Australia, that phrase becomes even more problematic as assumptions of white belonging are themselves premised upon Indigenous dispossession, which we can see in the case of the post internment camps, which were built on inter- Indigenous land. So here, you know, we have this really um, difficult tension um, of entangled histories that we really need to sort of dis- disentangle and understand as intersecting um, oppressions. So I think in the case of Noguchi, we are seeing an artist who used the critical potential of racialization as a site of empathy and of solidarity, both in terms of his voluntary internment, but also in terms of his larger social justice agenda. And the incredible 1934 work that Marcy, you already mentioned, um, entitled Death, Lynched Figure, which addressed the problems of lynchings of African-Americans in the American South.
0: Thanks, Ming. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for your insights. I mean, there are certain things that you've said there that really kind of struck home, especially when you said um, go back to where you come from. You know, as someone who's lived in the UK for a couple of decades now, I won't say exactly how long. Um, it's very interesting, this question of how many years do you stay in a place before you're allowed to think of it as home? You know, even now, I think uh, if you're on a long-term visa, you still have to prove that you have the right to work or that have the right to reside. Um, and, you know, these um, laws, you know, are subject to change. Uh, you know, at some point, if they decide to um, change that system, then y- you'll be vulnerable again. And it, it's very interesting as well, I suppose, when um, for specific communities, especially diaspora communities where migrations are intergenerational and this has happened through, you know, maybe an ancestor moving from China at some point or some other country at some point, and you've got these layers, then, you know, what is that process of indigenizing? Like, how does one relate to land? How does one make a home in relation to land? The other thing also that you mentioned was um, this entanglement between that specific context in which you're working in and then the geopolitics of how that racialization um, it might be framed um, and it's certainly very true because for myself at least you know I feel the most Asian in context when that Asianness is being challenged you know um, because I never feel very Asian because obviously I live Uh, in the UK um, and I've never been very traditional but recently there was a conversation around someone sort of negating Lunar New Year and suddenly I felt very passionate about Lunar New Year even though as a child when I grew up I was always you know a bit of a rebel and be like why can't I wear black on Lunar New Year you know to a very frustrated mother and all of a sudden I was advocating very strongly for the fact that we should acknowledge Lunar New Year and it's very strange how um, this sort of plays out that you, you start to feel that you have to represent or take up space for something to be acknowledged, which is actually a very common practice globally. But why is that so difficult except in a particular context? So, you know, I, I think these sorts of anxieties uh, emerge, especially during these moments of crisis or urgency in, um, and uh, yeah, it would be something, it'd be good to sort of think more about that together as well. But first, in, I would like to welcome Mika. Uh, Mika, if you please um, share with us about your work and then uh, tell us a little bit about your encounters with Noguchi.
2: Uh, thank you, Anif. Uh, I am Mika Maluyama from Japan, and usually I'm based in Vienna, Austria, but currently I'm back in Japan, so I'm now speaking from Japan. I am an independent curator, writer, and researcher focusing on the intersection between queer and feminist art practices and media and technology. But my practices range from curating and gym making to collaborative artistic practices with interest in transcultural practices and counter narratives that subversive innovativity. And since 2018, I have been a co-editor of the queer feminist art in Multiple Speeds in Japanese and English with artist Mayendo, And I'm also an active member of the Vienna-based artist collective, MyLin. Mylin is basically an artist collective, but also functioning as a platform of contemporary art. uh, contemporary Asian art culture, especially in German speaking countries, with a focus on queer and feminist positions to share and exchange experiences of racism, sexism and homophobia, especially against Asian women's bodies. So uh, it is very challenging for me to talk about Nonguchi and his work and narratives in relation to my practice But I believe that reflecting his transnational lived experiences is important in order to discuss issues of identity and belongings as Asian living outside of Asian countries. And as a Japanese person doing art practice, this kind of, this talk triggers the difficulties how we narrate his artistic legacy and history and we should also ask a question about which historical narratives should be discussed from which perspectives in the present day. But personally, one of my best memories of his work is Moelenuma Park, which locates in Hokkaido, the North Island of Japan. And uh, this park is uh, like a one whole big sculpture. And the, the park has a fountain, a glass building, and hills that uh, form one gigantic landscape that can be enjoyed as a fusion of specific nature of the land and artistic intervention towards nature. So we need to use our bodies to climb up and down this sculpture, touching the ground and so forth. So it is very bodily experiences. Uh, I think as Min talked about intersectional aspects of how his work as uh, seen, and also the current tendency of leading of his works and practices. But in, in general, in Japan, Long is highly respected as an artist and designer who bleached the tradition of the Japanese culture and spiritual aspect of the culture and monism. And most of the time, he has been related with issues of identity as Japanese-American, and therefore his narrative is always produced with his unique philosophy between West and East and his strong wish for peace because of his experiences starting between Japan and the US especially during the World War II. Yet, if we are talking about transnational or trans-Asian solidarity, Narratives around language in Japan seem to focus on only uh, a US-Japan trajectory. And of course, it is very male-dominated narratives. And for me, they are lacking different perspectives to reflect other experiences of the war and the the Japanese commitment to violence toward other Asian countries that are more complex than this Japan and US relationship. Yet, ironically, his proposal for a memorial monument for the Hiroshima Peace uh, Memorial Park was rejected because his proposal is too abstract. And some people say that because he is a Japanese American. So this is really like a difficult in some point he is really appreciated. But at the same time, people see him as a non-Japanese artist. So as a Japanese person based in Vienna, uh, based in Europe, I have certain experiences that is closer in some ways with other Asian diasporas. That is what Tong might have faced in his life. But at the same time, I also have to confront Japanese and its history that I, I carry with my body and the culture. So sometimes I can speak as just a person, but sometimes I am forced. To speak as a Japanese, and sometimes I became an um, Asian, and sometimes I had to talk as a gendered person. So, constantly, I feel that the personality and identity are changing depending on what I'm talking and whom I'm speaking to, or who is talking with. So for example, when I am talking, uh, I am working with other Asian diaspora or Asian immigrants within the artist collective Myling in Vienna, I'm really aware that each of us has different positions and backgrounds and homes, and we never can say we are the same Asian descent. And our experiences and personalities are different depending on nation, class, gender or sexualities and also depend on their relation to colonial and imperial inheritance in contemporary society. But at the same time it is still important to build solidarity in terms of how we can survive and support each other against narrow categorization or racism against Asian in Europe and globally. So it is really challenging and also Exciting to talk, talk about Nongchi uh, today regarding not only artist legacy, but also his transnational experiences with his attempts and maybe failure from Taiwan's national and global perspectives.
0: Thank you so much, Mika. Um, I think that's really interesting as well what you're saying there about how, in some way, being this. Uh, of a hybrid positionality, you're sort of there, you're here and there, but sometimes in neither places are you also considered at home and accepted, right? And so there's always this idea of code switching between different contexts to try to assimilate. And I think earlier, um, Masi used the word agent as well. And so sometimes you are playing this sort of double agent, uh, not necessarily politically, but you are always um, translating and mistranslating sometimes, and there's like slippages of meaning between different contexts that you are negotiating. Um, and, you know, sometimes as a, as a person, um, I, I find it playful sometimes, but also very tiring, um, because of the amount of work you have to do to um, have your aesthetic appreciated or your uh, context understood. I think the other thing also that's really interesting is that um, when you're talking about how we need to be very careful on one hand, when we say Asian community, um, it speaks quite hopefully, perhaps to a sort of strength in numbers of solidarity, Um, you know, that is a shared experience as as we were talking earlier about not being able to always differentiate between different uh, Asian communities just by sight. But at the same time, we don't want to eradicate um, the differences between different cultural contexts or languages or lived experiences. And I think that's really interesting because um, recently I think I was, had a conversation with someone where um, I think with reference, uh, I think they were implying because I was working with uh, Asia art activism, they were saying, oh, well, you know, you just work with one community. Um, and I <laughs> thought at that moment I had to kind of bite down really hard. I was like, one community like (laughs) what do you mean by one community you know because in age um in asian activism we have so many artists and curators you know that are connected to vietnamese filipino uh, malaysian singaporean um you know communities so of all different heritages so it, it was sort of perplexing at that moment to to be sort of told that that's all subsumed under one category of Asian because we happen to look at Asia as a lens. You know. you, you've brought so much to the table and I'm just thinking, how do we unpack this? And maybe if we could start with sort of one very sort of big public event, uh, which was that in um, 2020, um, at the tail end of 2020, November, after 10 or 11 months where we've already experienced this global unfolding of the pandemic, which saw a corresponding spike of violence against Asian folks in the US, and UK, and internationally, Um, albeit in um, response to the fact that there was a weaponization of um, the the coronavirus and the language around it um, put forward by President Trump, so what do we make of the fact that Noguchi's sculpture, Floor Frame, was installed in the White House Rose Garden, which makes Noguchi the first Asian American artist to be collected as part of the White House collection by the Trump presidency, no less. But what do we make of that? Um, and in a way, what do we make of the fact that uh, Noguchi has come to the fore again at this time? You know, how should we understand this?
1: I mean, um, this is Marcy, I can just, start by saying that um, when I saw that news pop up in my email digest, um, I just went, ew, (laughs) it was like so repulsive to me. Um, And I think that, you know, it's, it, it does seem though to crystallize um, in the most kind of flagrant way, you know, that uh, simply visibility and inclusion is not the political goal. <laughs> and in fact, could um, and is often used to manage dissent. Um, and then the other thing that, you know, kind of came up for me, um, is I think the thing that it's a it's a kind of thorny question um, that, Um, I'd be really interested in talking to all of you about um, which is you know I think that the conventional um, art historical kind of approach to something like this um, in let's just say um, placing an artist's identity in relation to their work um, is to say that well the form is the most important thing we can't just re-inscribe Um, a narrative of this, uh, you know, this person's work to who they are, um, you know, who they are in the world. Isn't that just reinscribing the logic of racialization? Um, And to a certain extent, I I understand where that point is coming from, right? Um, You know, it's so striking to me the way that in talking about this event, it almost makes the sculpture invisible, (laughs) you know? Um, And the very... The very structure of the sculpture, which is um, actually in two pieces, it's, it's, a, it's called floor frame, but it's a broken frame, um, in that it's two distinct pieces that, um, when installed, appear to actually dip below the floor, and Noguchi is really interested precisely in categorization and space, um, and how it is that things don't just have an essence, but are defined in relation to each other. I think that's key to his, um, his interest in theater as well. Um, And so, um, you know, for me um, on one hand, you know, there's a way in which the narrative um, that's ascribed to it by the white house um, in this acquisition is its own kind of really bad literal art history, um, simply saying that this work is reducible to this artist's identity. Um, and that's why it's important. Um, and at the same time, you know, I think that we can't separate this interest in categorization, this interest in space from someone who has experienced incarceration and actually physically experienced um, the physically, the physical parceling of space and the way that um, that enacts force. Um, and so I think that um, for me, it's always this question of. Um, kind of keeping both of these things that might appear to be opposed to each other. um, Let's just say um, kind of form and lived experience, but understanding that the relationship is quite complex um, and not a kind of one-to-one relationship.
3: Um, I think for me, there are two issues I'd like to respond to in terms of what you were just saying. Um, And One of them is this question of inclusion when we build our historical narratives. Um, You know, all museums these days have um, DEAI committees um, and they're all thinking about, you know, how do we diversify and include more? In fact, I might even say that this podcast itself is the result of a -A DEAI effort and we need to think about what that actually means. If we think about inclusion in these kinds of projects, we absolutely also need to think about what it means to construct new narratives. That we can't just be slotted into a structure that has already been predetermined that are reproducing structures of um, domination um and you know allow that where our our inclusion allows those logics to be um perpetuated you know we really need to think of ways to um interrupt and um rebuild um, new narratives, so that we're decolonizing entire structures and we're decolonizing the ways in which we build those narratives. So that's the first thing. Um, And the second thing that I thought was really important about um, your critique there of the Trumps, Um, was the way in which you talked about aesthetics um, and the way in which I think it's critical for us to think about um, aesthetics and social justice together. It's not one or the other. Um, These two um, ways of looking and ways of knowing can coexist. And um, uh, over the weekend, I was very lucky. I went to to Amsterdam and saw this um, exhibition Um, called Expressionism Colonialism, um, which was um, an exhibition of Emil Nolde and um, Kirchner. And they were bringing together um, objects from um, various collections in um, Germany um, that Kirchner and Nolde had looked at. And they were thinking very much about um, the colonial histories of those objects, how they were collected, how Noda and Kirchner would have had access to them. And there was a shift where, you know, um, the history of colonialism was foregrounded and Noda and Kirchner were um, de-centered. And one of the critiques that, um, that emerge of this exhibition was, you know, the question, can we still look at these artworks? Can we still see beauty? in these artworks right and i would ask the question what is beauty um can we see aesthetic beauty and can we see it in the context of ethical beauty as well and what does it mean for us to decenter aesthetic beauty even just for a moment so that we understand that these histories they're not innocent histories and that we need to look differently, to retrain the eye, right? And so I think that um, for me, in thinking about aesthetics and social justice together, um, it's really important to be able to do both so that you don't lose the objects, but also so you don't lose the history.
0: Thank you so much, Marcy, for your thoughts and Ming for intervening with um, your insights on that. Um, there's so much to unpack there. So if, before we talk about ethi- uh, aesthetics and ethical justice, I want to loop back to just clarifying one point um, because we're, we've touched on this really important question here about inclusion and visibility, especially when we're uh, as we all work with um, institutions and we have you know we know that's a kind of well-known critique now of many institutions uh, and their colonial histories and so on. So my question here is firstly. Uh, Why did Collier invite Noguchi? Like, was there an explicit reason that was made known anywhere about why the invitation was issued? Um, That's the first question. And I guess the second thing about thinking about working with institutions, uh, I think, you know, there's always this difficulty because for practitioners uh, like myself, and I'm sure Mika, you you experienced this as well, is that often, uh, you know, the invitations come as opportunities. And especially when you're an independent practitioner, um, the opportunities are precious because you know they're a way of um, making your voice heard or like, um, surfacing certain narratives around experiences. Um, but at the same time, then there are questions around you know what is representation if it becomes exploitation, right? So uh, what is the point of self-exploiting just to be visible? Um, and so it raises questions around, I think, what also Nagushi experienced, which was his lack of resources, the fact that he didn't receive the support, even though he was invited to take up that role. So he wasn't supported in fulfilling the, the mission that he was invited to take up. So I find that really interesting, this uh, conundrum of why he was invited in the first place if they were not going to support him.
1: The history of arts in the camps um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of research. But one thing um, to know is that a lot of the artistic programs were government run um, and it was to occupy people's time. And this is not the same as can, or programs run by people like Obada. Obata. Obada ran artistic programs um, for kind of his fellow um, prisoners. Um, but the government um, you know, and all of these government agencies, one have this kind of philosophy of arts as a form of improvement. Um, And that's coming from um, the philosophy of people like, of pragmatist philosophers like John Dewey. Um, But also they were putting people to work, um, for example, making camouflage nets for the war effort. Um, So that's one thing is the way in which arts were actually functioning in the camps um, feels like a really important future direction of research. So in terms of this other question, which um, I would actually love to hear Mika respond to, because you've already in some ways articulated it so, so beautifully. Um, but I guess I just say that I think a lot about this sentence that Anne Chang wrote in, in The Melancholy of Race, um, that identity is the grounds upon which both discrimination and progress are made. And it's like, what do we do with
2: that? Yeah, it's, it's really challenging things. But maybe I, sh- maybe I can talk why I'm also doing this MyLing uh, Artist Collective. And I usually, today, of course, I'm talking as a member, but like usually we are working like active as anonymously. So, like, uh, people not really knowing who are in MyLing Artist Collective because we thought this all the time, you know, like constantly we are categorized as Asian, Japanese, whatever, or, you know, female, trans, whatever. And it's really like tricky things for any uh, artist and any curators who has different background, based in Europe, for example, because this difference, of course, as a kind of one, one, from one perspective, it is advantage because we have some different voices that kind of showing diversity in the white society. But at the same time, we are also doing the different things, not only talking about our identity. That's why we kind of decided to fund Mylene Collective because one person's voice is not enough. And therefore, collective voice is really important because this is not talking about me or like one person identity, but we are talking how this race and gender categories has been have been constructed within this structure. So, and then I think this is both in society, like in general and also the art institution is the same. So, like we are kind of all the time playing with this game, or I don't know, like I we should say game or not because it's really like violence sometimes so like it should not be the game but we are playing with this uh kind of problem that okay we need uh we have to uh, make our voice visible but at the same time we also have to hide ourselves in some point and then for example Eduardo is quite uh important difference for example because he's talking about uh, uh you know non. Uh, because the white subject is transparent so that's why we need to like sometimes don't need to explain everything what we are doing so so this is for me like kind of strategy that in some point we have to open the door to kind of to in order to construct new narrative for ourselves but at the same time we also hide ourselves in some point.
0: I like it that you used the word "game" there um, because, obviously, I think a lot of us are now watching Squid Game,
2: <laughs> which mm-hmm. um,
0: popular cultural reference there. But um, and I suppose that also comes to mind to some degree because when we think about visibility and inclusion, you know. Uh, we're thinking also about competition to some degree. And and there's a kind of scarcity mindset of being like exceptional in order to be included in the canon, uh, in order for you to be validated by uh, a mainstream institution to be allowed to do work within that institution or to be seen in that institution. And so there are these kind of interesting um, tensions between being seen and being valued Um, and therefore uh, the work is being allowed to be supported to be made and so on. So I just wanted to go back to another point that Ming you made about how, when we're working with institutions and I sometimes wonder if it's almost inevitable that we will have these moments of working with institutions so what then are the strategies of interruption as you were suggesting or how do we change the landscape or change the game plan if we are going to take up these uh, challenges um, because at the same time i can see there are uh, advantages of doing that because you know you you have a possibly a platform and you're reaching out to a different kind of audience but in which case, then how do we negotiate um, that communication? And as Miko, you were saying, sometimes we are trying to bring some issues to the fore, and yet there are some aspects that are have to be hidden. Um, and I also think that's really interesting from a, a, a project I was working on recently, where um, because the artist was working in such a different cultural context with multiple migratory experiences, um, th- the institution I was working with felt nervous that the audience would not understand uh, what was that experience. And so it was very interesting, this process of how they were asking for a lot of information in order to nail down exactly what this uh, multiple migrations that his family, the artist's family experienced. Um, and I was wondering where, like how much more information did they need? How much more detail do they need, you know, in order to understand the work when precisely in a way the artist was trying to say that, Because of these ruptured histories in the family background, there are these spaces of ambiguity, spaces of ambivalence, which are part of the experience that he's trying to convey in the work, exactly. Um, But yet there was a real need by the institution to pin down exactly what this work means. You know, and that makes me, of course, think of Glissant's piece, you know, about the right to opacity, that um, even though I am a racialized subject in some contexts, is, is not necessarily my burden to have to explain everything to you either, uh, which can't be done anyway in reality. So I just wonder whether you, um, you would like to comment on, anyone would like to comment on that? Sure. Thank you so much for that excellent question,
3: Annie. Um, and it's a fraught one, um, one that I brought upon myself because of my comment earlier. Um, And one that I think about quite a lot actually. Um, I should say first that I am somebody who does work with institutions. I I believe in institutions. I think it's absolutely important um, for us to support institutions given the enormous platform that they have in the space of public culture, right? So for me, the starting point is how can I help? Um, And, you know, the other question, the, the other thing is, you know, I have many colleagues who are thinking about how we break down the institution, how do we blow up the institution, right, how do we get rid of institutions altogether, blow off the roof, but if you do that, then you have no roof, right, it takes a lot of work to build these institutions. And I think that for us, it's really important to recognize there's no such thing as being outside of history. And if you blow up the institution, then you'll have something else to deal with. So, I think that um, what's critical is um, a a project of reform, which, you know, is always fraught because, you know, as we were discussing earlier with DEAI, um, these inclusion projects always have a tendency to perform inclusion more than they actually um, enact them. Um, and my view on that is actually not that it's lip service, but rather that it's a kind of aspirational project. And, you know, I think that's important to remember that, you know, if you're aspiring to um, making change, if you're aspiring to justice, as long as the work is being done, it that, that kind of slow incremental change does eventually result in, um, you know, more just institutions. Um, The question is, how do we get there and how do we get there a little bit more quickly, right? Um, And um, I think that it's important for us to think about um, how we engage in that hard work, how we, um, you know, um, to think about how can museums hire more BIPOC curators in order to make um, cultural change within those institutions? But also for those of us who don't work in institutions, I mean, I work at a university, but not at a museum, but so I have an inside outside relationship to museums. Um, How can we on the outside then use our positions to interrupt, to sort of um, provide useful advice um, to think alongside like-minded curators rethink the ways in which these institutions represent um, artists and histories of color.
1: You know, for me, um, Annie, the situation you just described um, about an institution wanting more and more and more explanation, you know, my question is explanation for whom, you know, what does that say about the audience you're assuming? um, is coming to this, to this exhibition, right? Um, personally, what I've come to is one, um, there is no outside to the structure, you know, it's like, it's all like settler colonialism in the United States, you know? Um, so that's, that's the first thing. And then starting from that place, I just, um, ask myself, well, what, where is it that I'm standing right now? You know, um, I'm standing on Moek Ohlone land, um, but I'm also standing on land that was purchased by an institution through the wealth um, that was created by the Transcontinental Railroad, um, which was built through the underpaying, um, the drastic underpaying and mistreatment of Chinese laborers. Uh, So for me, I guess the two things about working at institutions that I'm at least starting from is who are we serving? You know, who is our audience? Um, And also to, to not pretend like the institution that I'm at is somehow apart from these histories. But to actually foreground that in everything we do.
3: Marcy, I thank you for that um, really powerful and important history, the, the exegesis of the place where you stand, which I think is, is, you know, so necessary. I think that question that you're asking, who is this for? Who are we serving is uh, really important. And um, it's a question that can also be asked of large institutions in the sense of how can we rethink who they're for? And I think that that's, that's really a really important way of reimagining not just who is represented and what um, diverse um, artistic collections are represented, but who does the museum speak for? Um, And how is the museum being rethought to imagine togetherness differently so that it's not really just about, you know, um, white audiences, but really thinking in a much broader sense to understand how do we connect communities
0: and what are those communities? You know, I think that was a really important question here about how we can't necessarily be outside of the system because the whole thing is one system and that of course makes me think about how um, quite often we've been I've been hearing a lot about the politics of refusal and I think that there is some um, that can be a a useful strategy at specific moments you know where the conditions are untenable and you know that so therefore you, you can exercise that politics of refusal not to play in a game that doesn't have the right conditions. But I think to completely disengage, I think is what you're saying that we can't disengage from the, um, the public narrative, because we're trying to be part of that public narrative and speak to it in order to hopefully alter it. Um, and I think that you know, it goes back to some really kind of everyday things that I think about when I'm taking up um, a project with an institution, you know, going back to Noguchi's issue, are there sufficient resources, you know, will there be enough support? Is there someone, you know, um, engaging with you uh, because as a project unfolds, there are many uh, anxieties or things that you haven't thought of that you might need support in executing, um, you know, that make that whole working process um, better. I also thought about how you know we talk about these days, um, especially in activist spaces, holding safer spaces. And I think it's really important that you know museums are um, f- focusing on that or honoring that within, like even the communications of a, uh, the working process, um, that there are safer spaces that you can feel that you you know that um, that's going to be mutual respect and in, in the language that's being used. Um, And I think these are just some of the starting points, in fact, you know, and I think that makes me slightly um, not, I I don't want to use the word disillusioned, but uh, sometimes I'm a little disheartened that, you know, the starting position is is that far back, you know. Beyond that, I think, you know, I was also reading up about how engagement with institutions uh, we're not looking only to be included in certain conversations, but how whether the invitation comes with a commitment to a sort of longer term engagement, uh, a longer term unfolding of, you know, how the institution sees its position and the narrative it wants to create. And that's something I'm still trying to learn. How do, how do you uh, navigate those kind of negotiations? And I just wonder whether you've had, uh, encountered that in your work, um, Mika, or, you know, the way that you've uh, negotiated that.
2: I think I, I am not really kind of institutional person maybe because uh, as a, I'm more, more working as an independent and when it comes to the collective, we also kind of working as an independent and we have more perspective as a grassroots who are more kind of focusing on the community building because I think this is the most important thing that as a this collective who are focusing on Asian diaspora, because we don't have any narrative, First of all, we have to kind of make, like form the community that we really can speak what we want to say. Because all the time, you know, being alone, talking just about this, you know, uh, the the problem, people just say like, okay, it's not important. And then you are the only one who are saying, saying, but it's with the collective voices. I think this is also like how we change and uh, we kind of funded the collective in 2019 and since then we have been kind of uh, doing different projects and you know sometimes in art museum and sometimes art kind of artistic land space and also the public space so like we have different uh, audiences and also like uh, for me it's the most important thing is that uh, how we how the audience uploads to us. For example, in in the museum, of course, nobody uploads to us. But in in the smaller space, we sometimes can talk each other. And then public space, it's really interesting for me, uh, for me, and for us. Especially since uh, we have social networking service. For example, Instagram. So like a younger generation just came to uh, to us. Even they don't, don't they, you know, they have no idea about what ads you know, what is art or like what is contemporary art, they just come to us. okay, you know, like this is the first time that we really see Asian, like uh, art practices uh, in Vienna, for example. So like for us, this is quite interesting, like how much these narratives are deleted from institutional narratives. And how much we have to do in in from the bottom level and the glass loots so like I, I believe that of course it's really important that we think we have to you know like glow with institute institutions but at the same time we also have to kind of take care of our environments and the condition that we are living in so this is a, uh, what we can what I kind of really feeling now and especially as uh, Annie also brought up some uh, issues since the corona happened, ironically, like we, of course, we are visible because of course we are the only, only or like, you know, a few voices in Austria or in German speaking country to, talking about Asian racism. That's why we are now more easy to connect easier. other. So this is like interesting that of course it's so... Uh, kind of the the painful to deal with all the time with these issues as artistic but practices and of course we face this like different violences but at the same time this visibility really uh, allow us to connect one build a network with other artistic practices and artists and networking not on, also outside institutions so so for me, like this, like both different, like positions different networks, quite important to, to talk about these issues, because this is also like, for, for me, it's always thinking that what is art now and how we kind of not define, but how we kind of see art and activism. So like how we kind of really think about intersection of art and other, other fields to talk about these issues because uh, I mean, there's no place only for art, I think.
0: I think that's a really good moment. Perhaps we can link this back actually to what you were saying earlier, Ming.
2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: About um, aesthetics and the role of aesthetics and ethical justice, um, which I thought was a really interesting way of thinking, you know, another way of thinking about art and activism. And You know, I just wanted also to raise uh, recently that I read this uh, review of Noguchi's work um, by Jonathan Jones, uh, who's a British art critic, and he was very scathing about Noguchi's artistic legacy, you know, but his name rang a bell. And so I was looking it up and I thought, oh, suddenly I remembered, oh, oh, I see. He was also someone who wrote about um, the exhibition Artisan Empire by the Tate back in 2016. And he wrote about it in sort of, uh, in a way that wasn't very critical at all um just said it was very exciting and um in an, on another occasion um he had called you know the very respected artist Bupenkaka a ham fisted hack um so it made me question about you know who is writing art criticism and you know who how are they viewing these works what are their references that they're bringing uh in the way they're reading these works and i also linked that to uh, an issue that I had personally um, not long ago when Ming, you know, when we were forming uh, Asia Forum and there was a discussion around, you know, how do we work with a PR company in order to promote the work that we're trying to do? And it was actually such a challenge because we realized that most PR companies, art PR companies uh, in the UK are very, in a sense, um, Eurocentric. And so they have no... Um, real way of engaging with what those narratives are. And so they they can't really identify with them and perhaps they bring a very different aesthetic lens. Um, And I was also surprised at that time because I said, oh, perhaps the importance of doing such a project would be because of this rise of violence against Asian uh, people internationally. And the comment at the time in response was, oh, I think that's exaggerated. It's probably like the incidents of violence On the streets of Poland, that were far more exaggerated than in real life. And I I remember thinking, this is strange. Uh, And later I kind of took a step back and I thought, okay, he probably thinks that, you know, as a white middle class male. because that's what the papers tell him, you know. Uh, they're not not all the incidents are reported, and I know about these incidents because they are shared through, say, um, educational networks or grassroots communities networks. And so, not all of these incidents make it to a mainstream uh, broadsheet. So, from his perspective, yeah, there there are not that many incidents. So they they sound this this whole issue about rise of the rise of violence against Asian people sound exaggerated. So I think it's really interesting. There's a kind of gap between, you know, various contexts and then who, who is writing about it. And I just wondered um, if you'd like to comment on that. Annie,
3: thank you so much for bringing this up. Thank you for connecting the dots for us um, for of Jonathan Jones's review of Artist and Empire, as well as his review of Bookman Minkakar. I think it's really important for us to look at these three reviews together and to understand um, what he's doing there and to show us the importance of thinking about the role of art criticism in um, creating public narratives as a kind of public storytelling that um, changes the way that the general public will think about culture and who is a legitimate cultural producer and who is not a legitimate cultural producer. I just wanted to sort of acknowledge um, what Mika said earlier about the importance of grassroots networks and um, alternative institutionalisms, thinking about different ways of being together and to build solidarities and communities. I think that's very, very important. Um, And perhaps the answer is, you know, not that um, either the large institutions or the um, grassroots networks need to sort of dominate in a sort of larger strategy, but rather that they work together so that there are these safe spaces within grassroots networks, and that the sort of larger space of the public sphere, such as um, you know the the art critic art criticism um, that you were that you read of. Um, Jonathan Jones, um, that art criticism plays an important role in um, defining that public sphere as do museums. And so, you know, I think um, it's really important for us to think critically about that public sphere and to um, critique the fact that he is um, building narratives that are um, creating a certain kind of narrative about the primacy of um, British, European, and American art, which excludes um, art from other places and, um, and, and thinks about those narratives in very particular ways.
0: I think, Mika, you described Noguchi's Park um, in Hokkaido, uh, which I, you know, for me, is an aspect of his work that brings a kind of embodied playfulness. uh, And I think that's really precious to some degree. And in a way, I think that was also part of the work that he showed at the Venice Biennale. Um, And I wonder if we could speak a little bit more about that because there's a certain joy as well in certain uh, his use of materials and the form that he embraces uh, experiments with. And I wonder whether we can rethink, um, how do we reclaim that, way of speaking of aesthetics that is not the Eurocentric, uh, more kind of normalized standard of aesthetics.
1: Yeah, this is um, a big interest of mine. Um, And it's an open question to me, um, but the way that I've been thinking about it lately has been that the problem is not aesthetics itself. It's the hierarchy that's created, um, and it's it's hierarchy. You know, um, it's the sense that something is beautiful, therefore it is just. You know, um, as opposed to there being multiple systems and structures of evaluation, um, none of which, none, not one, has any kind of primacy. So the problem with with a museum or with with art criticism more generally, you know, is that um, it's embedded in this structure of value making and distinction, right? Um, that is, as as I think Ming really um, like brilliantly elucidated, you know, like brings certain types of um, aesthetics or practices to the fore. But I think that at the core of that is the function of these structures um, is to create a sense of one practice or one narrative or one aesthetic being superior to another. And that's the structure that I feel like we need to be fighting against. Um, And the question is, how do you do that. I mean, I think that even in um, in talking with all of you, you know, what becomes clear is that we all have very different practices, which is actually incredible, you know, and really exciting because we are finding ways, or I think, trying to find ways to do this um, that isn't about a kind of form of mastery over all spheres. But, um, that is you know, located in what we're able to do. And that's the that's the emphasis on collaboration, Mika, that you were talking about. so i guess I guess that for me, like it's not about like destroying a museum, but trying to put the museum on par with Um, those kinds of local collectives, Mika, that you're talking about, as both being crucial arbiters um, and, you know, not like saying this critic has all the power in the world, but being
0: like, no, like this is just one voice among many. Thank you so much for that, Marcy. And thank you everyone for this conversation, because I guess it's really making me think about how we work um, in our everyday lives, how we work with institutions, how do we work with alternative spaces, how do we work within ourselves and our communities, and how all of these are interconnected within a kind of broader ecology, um, and I guess it's making me also think of, you know, I, I, this phrase uh, we've been really talking about within AA Asian joy. Um, because the last two years, you know, the narratives have been so dominated by grief uh, and loss, which, you know, has been experienced on a global scale, of course. Um, but in some way, you know, we're finding moments of respite by um, our shed um, happiness in some you know, for example, in food, you know, for example, uh, perhaps in pop cultural references. um, And these moments are really precious. But I think when I think about radical joy, you know, it also makes me think of the wonderful um, text that you wrote Uh, which has always inspired me since I read it, um, which I would love to read if that's okay, just a small little paragraph, because it makes me think because I, you know, often as curators, we use this word radical a lot like radical this and that, you know, but what does that really mean? Um, And so this text uh, is a challenge, I think, to to, uh, have a more expansive idea of what radicality might mean. So just to read from your text, um, it says, To be radical is to think beyond the disciplinary logics of art history rooted in 18th century nationalism, nation building, the creation of national collections, national archives, and even the logics of national competition enshrined in large scale biennales. It is to imagine new scales of analysis, to seek new ways of building art histories, to find new connections and resonances, and to imagine new structures of affiliation It is to find new modalities that enable us to read archives against the grain and to understand their absences in order to tell stories that have been suppressed, forgotten, or never imagined to have existed. It is to seek transversal articulations of urgencies that that appear parallel, relational comparisons, decenterings, and worldly affiliations, which help us to think imaginatively about how we are connected rather than forced apart. To dig deep into the scorched ground, to reveal the invisible mycorrhizal networks that link our roots, the radici, the radical foundations of our hard histories. And I think maybe that, you know, know, I find that so encouraging um, that it requires us to dig really deep uh, into ourselves and into the work that we do. Um, as a kind of self-reflexivity and questioning, like, why do we do something? How do we do something? You know, what is the impact of what we do? I don't know. I I think I might
3: want to say a little bit about um, this passage that you just read, which was in some senses, um, a call to think about radicality, not as being at the forefront of a struggle, but as a kind of rootedness that thinks relationally about how we emplace ourselves vis-a-vis our interlocutors. So that we are understanding that it's not necessarily that we have to sort of stake out the most radical position, but that what's really, what's most important to me, at least, is how do we proceed with care um, to build, new worlds um, together in such a way that includes multiple voices even the ones that we don't necessarily agree with
0: Marcy Meeker is there anything else you want to say as well
2: I think this is really like beautiful that uh, Min said now because I think sometimes we also have to accept our ugly feeling that this you know like (laughs) Of course being kind of sometimes competitive but at the same time we care about ourselves but at the same time you know like other people so like this it's not just one you know like a bit you know clear feeling or emotion but we all the time complex and and things and then I think always this is of course in everyday life but at the same time art is all all about this kind of accepting these kind of difficult situations and negotiating and also like acknowledging which kind of power relation we have now. So I think I, I really like kind of also like re- reflect what I'm doing and also how we kind of position in in this kind of these narratives, yeah.
0: Thank you. Um, this conversation has been incredible and there's just so much to take away um, to meditate on uh, in terms of the way we work. And I really like also um, Ming, uh, you're reminding us that you know it's about digging deep and digging into our rootedness, which of course is really one of those conundrums for the migrant, right? How do we gain ground? How do we grow roots? You know, how do we relate to land? Uh, so so much there again to think about in that image. Um, So I want to thank you again. Um, My guests today, uh, Professors Masi Kwan and Ming Tianpo and my fellow curator Mika Mariyama. So thank you for joining me uh, from across the world at all hours. Uh, It's been an amazing conversation and a wonderful way to kickstart this program. Um, So hopefully uh, we'll get to reconvene at another time, but thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Nothing Concrete and this special episode as part of the Noguchi Residences Digital Residency. Please subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. So I really wanna thank uh, you for being here
3: today.